Hello, you're listening to The Culture Bore, and I'm Susan Gordon. This is the podcast where I joyfully fall down rabbit holes lined with books, poems, and art. This week, I find myself face-to-face with a monolith. This giant is on the edge of things, yet always present. It's alien-looking, strangely shaped. It's called the avant-garde, and I really want to know what it means. The avant-garde denotes a specific group of people, but avant-garde is also used more generally to describe a new work, a piece of theatre, or clothing, or music. It was first used with respect to the visual arts, but has since become relevant to almost every creative form. If used casually, avant-garde lets us know this might be difficult to understand. It might have a small audience of sophisticates. Maybe it's a film that doesn't conform to studio conventions, one where the audience spends 90 minutes looking at a cow in a shed. Or it's a tiny printing press issuing beautiful books read by 10 people. Or it's a friend's one-woman show, the one they took to Edinburgh, the one where they talked to a plastic bag the whole time. To call these things independently made and unconventional, avant-garde is not completely wrong. But it's also a long way from the depth, power and history of the avant-garde. To use the term avant-garde so casually hints at its possibilities without ever actually knowing what they are. Before I began research for this podcast, I wondered about the digital magazines publishing new poetry and prose. Were they avant-garde? What about digital art? What about popular but niche YouTube channels? Here were all these new, brave, independent creators at work. Are they avant-garde? Could I be avant-garde with my experimental short stories? Alongside this somewhat aspirational line of inquiry, there were thoughts which were less comfortable. I had a long-standing sense of failure, which I could ignore most of the time, but not entirely. Not when it buzzed and bit. It was the thought that, in a century, and collectively, we'd never really built on the towering achievements of the modernists, those artists and writers working at a time when modernism and the avant-garde were synonymous. Writers that included T.S. Eliot, James Joyce, Ezra Pound, Virginia Woolf. I fear that we stood in their shadows. On a personal level, and entirely subjectively, it can feel like culture today is on two tracks. The mainstream, with a handful of movies, a handful of fiction writers, a few musical artists at the top of the charts, and everything else continually threatened by obscurity, yet kept alive by dedicated audiences and fans. Broadly, I associated the avant-garde with work which explored the form. It represented a breaking away from all known artistic conventions. If it was one thing, it was new. This again was not entirely wrong, but it wasn't quite right either. The avant-garde was once nothing more than a military formation. They were an advancing body of soldiers, leading ahead of all the others. When applied to art in the 19th and 20th centuries, in Paris, London and elsewhere in Europe, this militaristic, combative sense remained. To be avant-garde also meant being in political and social opposition. This was very often expressed in the work or accompanying literature. The printed face of the European avant-garde, 1900 to 1937, was published by the British Library in 2007. Inside, the magazine covers, drawings and photographs are confrontational, bleak. Faces and bodies are stark, unsettling. Colours are solemn green, deep red or black. These were artists at war. In later decades, the most famous avant-garde work is aggressive in its declarations about commercialisation, celebrity and art itself. 
Of course, not every artist or writer connects their work to their politics, yet they can't help but connect their work to society. In 1939, a somewhat itinerant 30-year-old called Clement Greenberg wrote an essay called Avant-Garde and Kitsch. This short essay, published in the Partisan Review, launched Greenberg's career as a formidable art critic in New York. The essay is luminous with insight. He doesn't see the avant-garde as a permanent presence in a creative community. For Greenberg, the avant-garde had a limited lifespan, existing only as long as it served a very specific purpose. He writes, open quote, The true and most important function of the avant-garde was not to experiment, but to find a path along which it would be possible to keep culture moving in the midst of ideological confusion and violence. If Greenberg is right, then the avant-garde simply cannot exist in every time and place. Greenberg's seminal essay was published in the magazine's autumn edition. In it, he notes the attempts by dangerous war powers, Mussolini, Stalin, the Nazi party, to court or suppress leading artists. On 1st of September that year, Germany invaded Poland. He points to the avant-garde as a force of resistance, withstanding these outside forces, acting in defiance of them. And this resistance extends beyond the machinations of dictatorships. The avant-garde also resisted the most harmful effects of technology. In the 90s, an editor at the New Art Examiner, Florence Rubenfeld, wrote a biography of Greenberg. Drafting it, she had many face-to-face conversations with the critic and his associates. This is how she puts it. Open quote. Clem saw the avant-garde as a temporary holding action, a unique effort to maintain standards, prevent stagnation, and keep culture moving until the West adjusted to a technological revolution whose repercussions we could still not imagine. Close quote. We've lived through a technological revolution in the last 20 years. Have we adjusted to it? And if not, does this mean there's still a place for avant-garde work? Other observations in that 1939 essay still resonate. We know the writer's writer, the director's director, those special talents recognised chiefly by those with a very strong grasp of the form. Greenberg writes, open quotes, The avant-garde specialisation of itself, the fact that its best artists are artists-artists, its best poets, poets-poets, has estranged a great many who are unwilling or unable to acquire an initiation into their craft secrets, close quotes. My experience of avant-garde work is that it stands for a beginning as often as it does a progression. It can mean a work in progress, something slightly undone. Elsewhere, Greenberg writes, the masses have always remained more or less indifferent to culture in the process of development. This word development struck me. I recognised it immediately. Thomas Crowe, an American art historian, alights on the same word in his book, Modern Art and the Common Culture, published in 1996. He writes, open Because of its unique position between the upper and lower zones of commodity culture, the avant-garde performs a special and powerful function within the process. That service could be described as a necessary brokerage between high and low, in which the avant-garde serves as a kind of research and development arm of the culture industry. Crow makes a distinction between high and low culture, as Greenberg does. Unlike Greenberg, Crow, it seems, sees the avant-garde as an essential part of culture at any time, not only in times of conflict. If you've ever been bored by a movie sequel or a new best-selling novel, you may take heart from Greenberg's understanding of kitsch. Kitsch is often used to describe things like tacky ornaments or twee signs hanging in a car rear window. 
For Greenberg, it applies to derivative culture. Kitsch is mechanical and operates by formulas, he says. It borrows devices, tricks, stratagems, rules of thumb, themes, converts them into a system and discards the rest. It delivers, he says, faked sensations. There's an assumption Greenberg and Crow share, not only with each other, but with most of us, that the work of the avant-garde is influential and that it moves on a trajectory to acceptance. The avant-garde needs to see its revolutionary fabric absorbed, eventually. This influence and acceptance cannot be short-lived, it must be sustained. These qualifying factors will exclude today's work in the main, however rich, varied, perhaps underappreciated, and without the support of conventional authorities. This is purely because it's very difficult to judge influence and acceptance across a short time frame. Equally, a work may never exert an influence. It may simply be beautiful. I suspect that for it to operate at its fullest and be most noticeable in society, an avant-garde needs authority figures to oppose, possibly dangerous authority figures with undisputed power. Without opposition, we have little more than a loose collective of creatives, people who share an aesthetic or set of values. It's not the avant-garde anymore, it's something else. If political or social opposition is an attribute of the avant-garde, then yet more contemporary practitioners will find themselves outside it. This is, of course, dependent on circumstances and geography. In London, Cardiff or Glasgow today, is it possible to stop an artist working? In a 2014 interview with The Spectator, the artist David Hockney said, nobody's taking notice of the avant-garde anymore. They're finding they've lost their authority, although he does not touch on any reason why. Ten years ago, Hogney treated the avant-garde as a contemporary body. Seeing his comment, I ask, who gets to decide as to the health and membership of any avant-garde today? The historians and art critics have spoken, but the steady weakening of mainstream media surely means a lack of consensus. Channel 4, which still hosts a number of arts documentaries, saw its audience share fall to a historic low earlier this year, according to Deadline. In May, its share of the main network audience was just 4.48%. BBC Two, another place for the arts, also saw a year-on-year decline of 1.9 million viewers. We live in a heavily stratified culture. This may mean there's no such thing as a millennial avant-garde. Yet avant-garde remains a powerful term. It's striking, even if it's only partly understood. And perhaps a partial understanding is the best most of us can hope for when the stories of the avant-garde in different places are so deep and complex. To say a work is avant-garde is to declare its authenticity, its pure expression and its originality. To say this is new is not an ambiguous statement, it's decisive. Should the assessment be accepted, this is new changes the narrative of our culture. It's a fork in the road and there's no turning back. In this podcast, I've only glanced at some of the topics irrelevant to the avant-garde. For example, I've not talked about Bohemia or the tense balancing act if a creative is to maintain outsider status while also being profitable. These are topics that deserve dedicated attention and that I hope I can return to. For now, it's goodbye and I hope you'll join me next time as we go into the woods with the culture bore. <laughs>